Thousands gathered in the streets in front of First Avenue that electrifying spring day. There were long embraces and much reminiscing. Many wore purple. Folks made art, paintings, banners, poems. Catharsis was found in grief-ridden tears, but also so much life-giving dance. Sometime around sunset, it rained, and most people swear the sky turned purple. For three days, the celebration continued until the sun came up. Prince's death made ripples through a worldwide community, and those ripples certainly made waves closest to home. It was one of those moments in time where a collective memory was created. If you were there, you know. Much like Prince showed us that feminine men can walk with a hard-ass swagger in their step, he showed us that celebrating life after death can be something profoundly beautiful if we lean in, follow our hearts, and dedicate ourselves to imagination, even and especially during times of loss. Tracy died soon after a long fall Civil War Just after I wiped away his last year I guess he's better off than he was before A whole lot better off than the fools he left here Lysatia is a funeral celebrant and grief advocate from Minneapolis. That was an excerpt from a blog post she wrote this year, thinking back on April 21st, 2016. Before April 21st, 2016, many of us lived in the Twin Cities with an understanding that we might just see Prince around. He'd ride his bike around Chanhassen, the Minneapolis suburb where he'd lived for decades and built Paisley Park. In downtown Minneapolis, he'd be sitting upstairs at a Janelle Monet concert or a jazz show. Every once in a while, he'd announce these surprise shows where anyone could head over to Paisley Park to see him perform, often alongside special guests such as FKA Twigs or Kendrick Lamar. And then, one spring day in 2016, he passed away due to an accidental fentanyl overdose. He was 57 years old. And as the shocking and tragic news of his passing spread through Minneapolis and the world, thousands of fans and community members congregated outside First Avenue. People came to be together, to absorb the shock and heartache, to remember and celebrate, and to listen to his music. Songs that revolutionized American pop culture and pop music around the world. I'm Cecilia Johnson, and this is The Current Rewind, the podcast putting music's unsung stories on the map. In this season of Rewind, we're zooming in on several important dates in the history of First Avenue, 
one of the Twin Cities and the country's greatest live venues. Most of these episodes have featured a different guest host. Today, we've got my friend Jade on deck. She's a host on The Current, and she hosted that street party outside First Avenue. I was there too, and I remember it as a surreal and overwhelming night. Surreal is right, and the perfect amount of bizarre and true to honor someone so wholly iconic. I'm Jade. I've been a host at The Current since 2008. And in that memory box of days, April 21st of 2016 will remain at the top of the pile. Not just being on air to break the news of Prince's death to our listeners, which was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in this job, but the whirlwind speed at which the event came together and that pin drop quiet of the streets outside First Avenue as I stood on stage surrounded by Prince fans and musicians and mourners. That is something I will never get over. Famously, Prince was born in Minneapolis and lived in the area for much of his life. The electrifying live performances in his 1984 movie Purple Rain were staged in First Avenue, and the hit movie turned the club into one of Minneapolis's foremost tourist destinations. And even though over the course of his career, Prince only performed nine official shows at the club, every one of them was an event. The fourth episode of this podcast season covered the August 3rd, 1983 concert where he and the Revolution debuted the song Purple Rain. Although it may have seemed like the First Avenue Street Party following Prince's death erupted spontaneously, like magic, from the energy of fans, of course real people made it happen. One of those people is Jeffy Nilica, who used to work for Minnesota Public Radio as the director of live events. Around midday on April 16th, Jeffy found out about Prince's death, and they remember staring out their office window and getting lost in thought. I had this like really clear memory of when Kurt Cobain died. I was definitely in seventh grade. I remember watching MTV News, and they were they you know they really ran coverage all day, and they were sh- showing uh, scenes from Seattle, and like all of Seattle was coming out lighting candles, and Courtney Love was there, you know, like this whole scene, and I I was like, oh well, this is like this place is as important, like it's so connected. I mean, like for people that that have not lived in Minneapolis, and especially like don't go to a lot of shows at First Avenue. Every time, like, before Prince died, like, 70% of shows involved someone wanting, like, someone covering a Prince song. Like, bands are in town. They always play a Prince song at First Avenue, Mm -hmm. especially in the main room. And so, like, you know, it's like, I want to have a dance party at First Avenue with my sister. Like, that sounded really fun. So that just, like, you know, kind of popped into my head. And then it was the board meeting. And so, like, everyone that could make a decision— like, they could, like, give clearance for something, was all locked in a room together for the day. Outside the board meeting, Jeffy found Dave Kansas, who was then the COO of NPR's parent organization. I saw Dave in the hallway, and I was like, Dave, I think we should throw a party. I think we should throw, like, a street show in front of First Avenue. Can I do that? Can I spend whatever money I need to do that? And he was like, yeah, you should do that. And then I just started calling people. So many people helped organize the party. Justin Levy, Rose Martin, Ellie McKinney, Ellie Lozoff, 
Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting folks. Jeff Kamen, Tom Campbell, people that do events all the time, coalesced to figure out how we were going to throw a party by that evening. They called up First Avenue, the city of Minneapolis, and Slam Hammer, a local company that rents audio equipment and stages. So they were getting this phone call like, hey, Prince died. Can you get us some sound equipment? And people were like, we'll do whatever we can. Like, of course, we'll figure it out. It's not typical for the city of Minneapolis to grant a same-day permit for a street party. But around 5 p.m., the organizers got the green light. Meanwhile, they had to figure out who was going to perform Prince's music. We wanted to keep it as simple as possible, so we we booked a house band. There's a, a kind of a group of musicians who play a ton of Prince music in town, and then sort of guest vocalists that would hop up. You know, I think the ethos was that Prince was so incredible at putting and introducing women of color in his bands, and I think we wanted that to be definitely in the thinking of the programming, uh, that that would sound and feel right. Once the permit from the city came through, the current's Mary Lucia started telling radio listeners about the street party. But even before that, people started to gather outside First Avenue. You know, even if you didn't know that there was anything going on, if you loved Prince and you like wanted to honor him, you probably would go down to First Avenue yeah. without even knowing that it was a thing to do. You know, people were at Paisley that day, too. So fans and party organizers were starting to find their way down to First Avenue. But Jeffy had to make a quick stop home. I was dressed kind of like board meeting day. So I was like a little formal. I was like, I'm not wearing this to the Prince party. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone was like racing over to like deal with stuff and set stuff up. And I was like, I'm sorry. Like, I need to go home and change. <laughs> and so I like raced home. I saw my husband like, honey, I'm throwing a party. You should come. I gotta go. <laughs> and I had this amazing like sparkly purple kind of like a early delta burke designing women look mm. big shoulder pads like sparkly paisley it was incredible it was the perfect look um so i threw that on ran downtown and people started showing up it was really amazing like it had gotten like nice enough um, that it was actually kind of pleasant to be outside. And, you know, it's April in Minnesota, so it was actually sort of a novelty to be spending time outside. The music started. It was so special. Like, people would just, like, turn the corner onto 7th Street wearing, like, these amazing outfits and crying and laughing and being excited and being inspired and um, being together. People just kept showing up and kept showing up. And, I, and then I'd see people that I knew, and, you know, it, was, like, it felt like this total genuine community event. As the streets filled, a squad of Minnesota musicians started performing Prince covers. Chastity Brown covered Little Red Corvette. Claire DeLune sang When You Were Mine. And Dem Atlas ran and jumped around the stage while singing Let's Go Crazy. Cameron Kinghorn of Nookie Jones and Black Market Press sang one of his most treasured Prince songs. If you can clap your hands, clap them like this. Hey! Now everybody say 
2016, Cameron was a well-established singer, trumpeter, and songwriter. But back when he was still figuring out his voice, he picked up a few tricks from Prince. Once I heard his music, then it was like, oh, yeah, like, there is something about this that, like, immediately clicks. And that, that has now become a big part of what I do. So, like, as a, as a male vocalist doing the, the falsetto thing, that was huge, huge for me. If we're talking about specific moments, um, so I remember like the first song that I, I sat and listened to, and I was like, "Okay, like this is it." Was um, "How Come You Don't Call Me Anymore?" And so I had, the first version of that song I had heard was by Bilal, and then I was looking deeper into it because I was like, "I love this song. This is incredible." And then I was like, "Oh, this is a Prince B side," and then I went and checked out his version, and it was just like. You know, like, game over. Speaking with our scriptwriter, Sun Young Shin, Cameron reflected on the powerful combination of emotions on display outside First Ave. Yeah, I remember, like I said, like this combination of sadness, like this deep sadness, along with, like, basically, like, like it felt like a celebration of life. Yeah, there was, like, Prince's music was being DJed and just, like, pounding, you mm-hmm. know, and you could, like, feel it. By the time Cameron had got on stage... A lot of people had shown up. And it wasn't until I got up there that I realized, I was like, like every direction I looked, yeah. you like literally you could not see the end. It's unreal. Like that, to have that many people, it felt like a celebration. Like everyone was singing every song, uh, all the words to every song. There's people like laughing, smiling, people crying. It's hard to, to really define what that feeling was like. Mm-hmm like a, a new feeling is something like on that scale I've never experienced and I'm I don't think that I ever will again near the end of the night Lizzo treated the audience to an astonishing cover of the beautiful ones from Purple Rain Lizzo was the sort of final act. And, you know, she, she was a, a, a local love enough at that point that people knew that she was going to be there and were excited to see her. Lizzo had spent the past several years living in Minnesota, and she was just starting a new chapter in L.A. Within hours of hearing about Prince's death, she boarded a plane back to Minneapolis. So we're like, you know, people know that Lizzo's coming. She's trying to get to downtown from the airport. At this point, downtown is like basically shut down because of this party. She can't get in. We're trying to figure out how to get her in. Our permit at this point is like well overdue. Like the party is supposed to be done. Um, She ends up pulling up on Hennepin and entering kind of the back of the event, like the, the back of the audience. And you just see like this like purple parting of the sea and Lizzo's like walking down the entire avenue and she just like climbs on stage from 
the crowd, um, from a crowd of, you know, probably 10,000 people, and then destroys it. It's amazing. Outside First Avenue, the crowd gave it up for Lizzo. Inside the club, Slipknot's frontman was headlining the main room. We have a sold-out show that night with Corey Taylor. DJ Smitty was yet another person who helped keep the evening running. He had worked at First Avenue since 1993 as a bartender, cashier, and concert DJ. I had worked late the night before, so I was sleeping in, and um, my phone went off. And I look, and there's a, a... there's a text message asking me if I want to go down to the depot bar and play some Prince music. And I'm like, no, I'm trying to get some sleep here. Threw my phone back, try to go back to sleep. And then it just kind of slowly, what, why, what a strange thing to ask. And, oh no, I should. So I turn on the TV, see the news, just throw on clothes and head down there because. You, you know what's coming. You know that people are going to come and surround the club. They're going to need some hands, and I'm close by. So I get down there, and, you know, there's already eh, like 50 people down there. Uh, there are People are taking turns, uh, taking pictures with the star. People are bringing flowers. And it was, it was unlike any other celebrity death I had dealt with before, where, you know, you don't actually know this person, but you there's a connection between Prince and the Twin Cities and First Avenue and people. Corey Taylor had to play in the midst of all this. But you would think the Corey Taylor crowd may not be the biggest Prince crowd, but he opened with Purple Rain, solo acoustic. And it was great. And Corey Taylor did his thing, played till 9.30, 10 o'clock, then we opened the doors for a Prince dance party that was going to last till 7 a.m. They did not inform me of that when I got to work. It was a game of telephone at work that day. You know, we're staying open till 1. We're staying open till 4. We're staying open till 7. Last bartender on, you're doing it all night. Great. And the people who are coming in, they I don't know what they were expecting. They didn't know what they were expecting. But they it was nice. It was very nice. Uh, uh, I hugged more strangers that weekend than I have in my life. People were just thankful that we were open, that they could come down to this. And working, you know, and basically you would work till seven, go home, sleep, come back. Because they, you know, people stayed around First Avenue. Then we had two sold out nights with Bob, Bob Mold. Well, they were sold out after, you know. People bought tickets to just to get in because they wanted to see they wanted to see First Avenue. National and international news crews visited Minneapolis to report on Prince's death. Fans from all over the world caught planes into town. 
So many people associated Prince's legacy with his home state that Minnesota was like a purple magnet. During the street party, a news helicopter hovered over the crowd, broadcasting aerial views of downtown, meaning even if you couldn't physically be in Minneapolis, you could see the party on YouTube. This gathering, which lasted days, offered Prince's local and global community a way to process grief, a way to be together, to remember this iconic person from our community. People danced and sang. Minnesotans are known for keeping polite distance from each other, from maybe not moving around too much. But outside First Avenue, we let down our guard. I feel like the party is like is like the ritual place. Jeffy has been throwing parties personally and professionally for years. It's like organizing queer parties, and I ran a queer art space for a long time, like cooperatively. And so, I, you know, throwing parties and thinking about like why you throw parties, and um, there's I'm, I'm wish I could quote who said this, but um, they talk about like you have to make the revolution irresistible. Jeffy's talking about Tony Cade Bambara, a revered Black woman, writer, artist, and teacher who lived from 1939 to 1995. And so I feel like the party makes the revolution so much fun. And that's why, that's what I get excited about the party. The party has a sense of danger and possibility and chance. And I think that's why I still like to throw parties. First Avenue's street party was the biggest and longest-lasting memorial to Prince, but certainly not the only place where people gathered to be together and pay tribute. Minnesota food justice activist LaDonna Redman co-organized the Prince Memorial Concert at Sabathany Community Center, along with Sabathany's executive director, Cindy Booker. Redman, who grew up in the south side of Chicago, is currently the board president of Seward Co-op, and she's the CEO of Redman Consulting, where she helps businesses improve their diversity, equity, inclusion, and employee wellness practices. She told us about the moment she found out Prince had died. I was sitting at my desk and um, I started to get all of these texts from friends who are know I'm here. And they were like, hey, what happened at Paisley Park? And I'm like, oh, what? So I look at my phone And basically, they were saying that there was a body that was found at Paisley Park, and everyone was hoping that it wasn't Prince. And of course, TMZ, when Mm. they say somebody has made a transition, um, they were announcing that it was Prince. I belonged at that time to a gym where many people grew up with Prince, and some people were his bodyguards and had relationships with him. Mm I went down there, and I have never seen so many men on the floor crying and simply distraught. When Sun Young asked her about her first memories of Prince, Redmond thought back even further to her childhood crush on Michael Jackson and the Jackson 5. She says that crush was a key part of forming her identity as a Black girl. My mother used to say, you're going to lose your mind if something happened to them. I'm like, "You, you are right. Then, as a teenager, she found another object of affection. So about the time I was 13, um, my girlfriends and I saw a poster on the wall of a local record store. And it was a poster of Prince. And we were like, who that? (laughs) (laughs) Who, Who might that be? 
And uh, he was like, oh, it's this kid out of Minneapolis. And, you know, he played the album for us. And we bought it immediately. So from there, I was a freshman. Wow. You know, in high school and got a chance to try out for the pom-pom team. And the song that we danced to was Soft and Wet. Oh, my gosh. Juxtaposed with you and I. My mother was not happy. <laughs> you know, these were, these were really super racy songs. Yeah. You know, for the 80s. Yeah. Soon after was- Prince's passing, LaDonna helped put together a block party outside Sabathany Community Center in South Minneapolis. Walter Kubert Banks and Shed G from local radio station KMOJ agreed to co-host it. And then I just started calling my friends and we started to put together a roster. You know, my back was out and I could not go downtown to First Avenue to figure out how to stand up all day. And I was I wanted to do something that was accessible during the daytime for all ages. But my focus wasn't just, we're going to play Prince music. We're going to do something that I think Prince would like, Mm -hmm. which is facilitate the musicianship and artistry of young people. We had everybody from a drum, you know, drum corps, Mm -hmm. marching band from North Minneapolis to Flavor Flav showed up mm-hmm. to the sounds of blackness. Right. We got it done. Right. And, you know, between uh, Cindy and I, yeah, we were able to convince folks mm-hmm. that, yeah, this is something you should, you won't be a part of this. One of the performers they found was Damien Strange, a composer and sound designer who is currently working on his second and third full operas. He grew up in the Columbia Heights and Petworth neighborhoods of Washington, D.C., and he's now based in Minnesota where he's the director of community and belonging for the American Composers Forum. Strange first heard Prince at the age of about seven. There is dad. That was the, the intro to Prince. And, you know, from that point on, you know, Prince was the person I looked to for inspiration and for what was new and for what was fresh in terms of Black music. And he, you know, he looked the way I wished I could look in some ways. Like, he was fearless in the way he dressed. And despite the fact that both of my parents were artists, um, my household was pretty conservative. And so I had to dress fairly conservatively. And so I kind of lived vicariously through Prince's outrageous outfits. (laughs) Damien described how the Minneapolis sound permeated 1980s pop music. Another artist that, you know, I felt attached to early on was Janet Jackson. And you listen to, like, Control and subsequent albums. They were produced in in Minneapolis, and you could hear that influence, um, that rhythm, that funk with that sort of steady uh, kick drum, uh, the horn shouts and things that they would do on the synthesizers was such a huge influence of in pop music. And then, so when I was trying to write pop music as a kid, that's, that's what I looked for. That's the sound that I wanted. Strange, who writes operas, among other projects, shared how Prince's relationship to his Blackness inspired his own work, in particular his first opera. Mother King is an interpretation of the story of Alberta Williams King, the mother of Martin Luther King Jr., and I mean, I, I will point again back to Prince for, for that. You know, if I think of an album like um, 
around the world in a day. I mean, a lot of his albums had very eclectic or like the spectrum of black music. But I think of how orchestral that album was. And, um, you know, I think of like uh, The Ladder, for example, on that album and sort of the storytelling um, sort of component of of that song or elements of that song and, and how sort of how big that track was. Um, because he was telling an epic tale, and that's kind of what I have tried to do as a as a composer um, as well. And that's why opera is so appealing to me: the fact that we can tell um, a huge story with music and and art, visual art from sort of the costumes and and set design and and video and dance. Um, you know, Prince was always trying to do that. One of Damien Strange's musical projects is the Afrofuturistic band Moore's Blackman. The band describes itself as an intergalactic vessel from the future, which landed here on Earth to accelerate the development of humans through the power of sound. That's the band Damien performed in at the Savathany Memorial. He talked about the magic of covering two of their favorite Prince songs. We ended up being able to play on that stage and that, and that that celebration of Prince's life there, which was huge. It was actually the, the largest crowd that Morris Blackman had ever played for. You know, we played jazz fest and things like that at smaller venues, but that crowd was huge that day. And so we played some of our music, uh, some of the stuff that I felt was really um, inspired by Prince and uh, his sound, the Minneapolis sound. But then we also did a cover of... She's Always In My Hair, which is one of my favorite Prince's songs. Actually, one of my absolute favorite Prince's songs was Computer Blue. So we covered that song, and, you know, people were really excited about our performance. And I just felt good that we could honor Prince and honor his life Mm -hmm. and his legacy. LaDonna Redmond talked about how Prince uniquely brought so many kinds of people together and how that was present again at the Sabathany Gathering. I mean, we had young people there. We had older people there. We had people from um, MPG were there. It was fantastic. It was, there was not one race, color, creed, age group that was not represented out in that little lot behind Sabathany. It was fantastic. Many believe that this physical human life is not the end. When asked what he would say to Prince if he met him on the astral plane, singer Cameron Kinghorn talked about gratitude. Yeah, like the, the, the path that he laid, others like myself have been able to walk on and, and obviously what he did for, for this city. Yeah, I think gratitude, that's just like the biggest thing is like, yeah. thank you. Lasatia says she sees an intimacy with death in the way Minnesotans submerged themselves into Prince's music and Purple Family that week. What I mean when I say that, um, slowing down to pay homage to this essential rite of passage, because in this country, we view it as something um, that's very gruesome. We would rather look the other way. We would use a lot of really negative adjectives to talk about death or prefer to not talk about it at all. And I think finding ways to talk about death in a, in a holistic way that, that does acknowledge the grief that's there, but also acknowledges 
how beautiful it is to honor pe- the people that we've loved um, and honor their rite of passage and really being able to integrate the experience of death and their death with honor. We know that music heals. Art can heal. It can hold us together and carry us through so we can keep going, surviving, and hopefully thriving. LaDonna Redmond spoke lovingly and hopefully of Black genius, freedom, and healing. Be free, you know, be free. And, you know, there's a there's a piece of the historical trauma, right? So a lot of our genius comes out of being forced to make a way out of absolutely no way. Right. And so how do we create, you know, healing from trauma? The reflection on Prince's life and some of our own lives indicate historical trauma as well as interpersonal trauma. How does that fire, you know, come together to create the people that we are? And then what do we do with it? Mm -hmm. And sometimes the fire can ingest us, but the fire can also be that spark of inspiration that really truly frees us. This episode of The Current Rewind was hosted by Jade and me, Cecilia Johnson. It was produced by me and Jesse Weiza and scripted by Sun Young Shin. Marisa Morseth is our research assistant and Jay Gabler is our editor. Our theme music is the song Hive Sound by Ice Tep and Johnny Vince Evans mixed this episode. You can find out more about Lasatia's business at the Revolving Altar, like A-L-T-A-R.com. Thank you for listening to The Current Rewind's First Avenue season. We hope you've learned something new about First Avenue and our surrounding community. This is the last full episode of the season, but we have two bonus episodes on the way. One about First Avenue stars next week, and after that, a collection of memories about First Avenue's staff Thanksgiving dinners. And then, who knows? If you have any feedback or questions based off the season, please reach us at rewindatthecurrent.org. And if you want to support this show, I would highly recommend finding us on Apple Podcasts and rating and reviewing our show. The Current Rewind is made possible in part by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. It is a production of Minnesota Public Radio's The Current. <laughs>